Thank you for joining us here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is a podcast focused on helping business owners, executives, directors within the treatment space run better operations so that they combine excellent clinical operations with excellent business operations, thereby achieving a sustainable center that leads to growth and the ability to help more people. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for addiction treatment and behavioral health centers. You can always find out more about them at www.circlesocialinc.com. Today we're speaking with very special guest Lyle Fried. Lyle Fried was the owner of the Shores Treatment Center and very well known, especially in the Florida space, but basically across the U.S. And I wanted to bring him on and speak about his experience, you know, growing up within the recovery industry from a career perspective, and then eventually opening up his own treatment center, and sadly, seeing that center close just a couple months ago. Like many centers that are closing or you know near closing with the low census, Lyle struggled with a lot of the changing factors within the field. Uh, and so we take a look at what was changing, how that affected their center, and what could have possibly been done differently to have a more successful outcome. So I hope that you can learn a lot from Lyle's insights into the current state of things and different ways that can hopefully help your center maintain and make it through any difficult census issues that you're having. With that, let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Lyle. Welcome to the show. I really appreciate you coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing better than I deserve. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, can you? I think a lot of people in the field know you, but you know, for those who don't, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, I got into the field uh, the way a lot of us do, by going through treatment myself back in the 90s. Um, I experienced a, a one place that was very high-end, nice, plush, uh, but uh, when I didn't have another 40 grand to give them for the second month, they magically graduated overnight. And then I uh, stayed clean for a period of time, ended up back in treatment at a facility faith-based program that would let you stay as long as you wanted, but lacked uh, some of the license to professional individuals. And I just thought there should be something somewhere in between. So I began to explore that, went back to school and got uh, my psych degree, began studying the state statutes and licensure and helped that place that I had gone to become a licensed and uh, fully professional facility, Uh, moved on, began doing consulting, worked through different levels of care from scrubbing the toilets to uh, behavioral health tech to um, clinical director, executive director, CEO, uh, and continued to do consulting within the industry. Uh, And that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Uh, Long story behind all that that we probably don't have time for. (laughs) So... um, just a real interest in seeing, you know, how to make things better. When I was in that first place, they had a doctor from Holland come over and explain what was wrong with our brains. He told us all about neurotransmitters, axon dendrites, and how they misfunction and malfunction and deficits in neurotransmitters and all these things. But they never gave us a solution. So um, part of my exploration was saying, well, if we know what the problem is, then we should be able to find a solution. And through that, 
ended up coming across Dr. Kenneth Blum, who has been doing research in that area for over 40 years, and began uh, joining him in some of his research to come to some of the solutions that we have today. So then you started your own treatment center, The Shores, right? It was about five years ago? Correct. We actually began that launch in uh, May of uh, 2013. And did you start that with a couple partners, correct? Correct. Initially on site, it was myself, my wife, and one of my partners, and then we had a couple silent partners as well. Okay. And it was a fairly small facility, you know, just, I think you guys had, what, 15 beds or something like that? Well, when we started, we had uh, 910 square feet and no beds. It was outpatient only, and then it grew to uh, about 24 uh, residential slash PHP, and then another 36 or so uh, on the outpatient levels of IOP and outpatient really just recovery residents. Okay. And then, unfortunately, a couple months ago, you guys closed the doors on that, right? August 7th was the last day, actually, yes. So uh, that's really why I kind of wanted to bring you on. A lot of centers are struggling right now. A lot of centers have closed down, you know. So you've been in the field. You've kind of worked up through the different levels, started your own center, you know, shut this one down and are moving on to new things, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, But what did you learn during that time Oh, gosh, so much. I mean, you know, previous to opening the shores, I had, again, done a lot of consulting, mostly on the licensure and uh, accreditation end of things, outcome measures, improving outcomes. The uh, business end of it was what my partner was bringing to the table, and I learned a lot about that. I had known a good bit about it, um, but learned obviously a lot more uh, being in that role uh, for the last five years. And just the changes. So, so I had worked in um, nonprofits for a long time. That's a different world, and that world has changed as well. The for-profit sector, I never realized some of the stuff that was going on in our industry, which has now become national news, until about 2011 or 12, when I became more intimately involved at the higher levels of some private facilities. Previously, I had been in um, nonprofit sector. And when I got into the for-profit sector at that level, I began to learn more of what was and wasn't going on. And so, obviously, you know, through this entire time, I remember we spoke last year, I think it was, um, and things were going quite well. And so it seems like there was, a, you know, obviously a shift for you if you guys ended up closing within that year. You know, what changed for you that kind of brought the, the negative turnaround? Uh, a few things. Uh, obviously, uh, the insurance industry is a major driver uh, in this world that we live in, and they change the reimbursements and the way they reimburse for, particularly in our area, the, the, you know, different states can see the exact same individual and receive very different um, results from the insurance companies. I'll give you a classic example. This is a local facility near me that had an individual who wanted to come to Florida, and they ran his insurance, and it, it was started for four days was all they would give them, and they gave them a price. They, you know, they were, their reimbursements were about 20% of billable. Well, they had another facility up north. They ran the exact same individual through there. They got pre-certified for over 30 days at almost 100%. Exact same individual, exact same medical necessity, uh, nothing different except for the zip code. So when the insurance company hammers a certain area, there are going to be places closing. It's just, you know, they're they're not offering sustainable reimbursements at some levels of care for the quality of care that actually works. If you 
certainly you can take people in and treat them and get paid what you paid and even maybe turn a profit. But our goal has always been to help people have a lifelong uh, sobriety improvement of their life, you know, find ways to, to live a happy, healthy life. And unfortunately, what you get reimbursed for does not allow for quality care in many cases. We refused to negotiate on the quality of care, so our margins became nil. Now, the other, there are other factors, and that is the, the way they reimburse. So um, about 2000, I want to say, eight, nine, uh, there was a shift away from residential care by the insurance carriers, and they began to not pay for or not certify for residential care. They were pushing for that PHP, sort of what they call the Florida model, PHP and IOP. You live off-site. It was, it was more affordable on a per diem, you know, so their cost per day was lower, and that seemed to be what they were pushing for. So they were certifying good number of days for those levels of care, but not for residential. So naturally, all the providers began to close down their residential because that was now long, no longer sustainable and moved to that model that was being reimbursed. Well, then the pendulum swung, and they started not wanting to reimburse for the PHP IOP model and started doing more days for residential. At the same time that we had uh, some of the negative factors from Florida cleaning up the industry, being the first to have a specialized task forces, uh, implementing 11 additional laws that don't exist in other states, doing more to protect the consumer than any other state by far. Unfortunately, the way that played in the media was all these people are being arrested, Florida's the Wild West, don't send your kids there, they'll die. When in fact, statistically speaking, Florida is the safest place to send your kids. Uh, the per diem, uh, uh, you know, per capita overdose in Florida is much lower than most places, and certainly the recovery community in Florida is very strong. And the odds of them getting sober and clean and having a good life are actually better in Florida, and they are, there are more protections from a legal standpoint. However, that's just not the that doesn't sell media, you know, that doesn't sell news. So that's not what we hear. So you get that factor also came in where people were hearing this, oh gosh, Florida, no, any, anywhere but Florida. Uh, and that's just a negative portrayal by the media. Um, so all these factors combined has made it very hard for people to fill beds in the state of Florida and, and get paid a, a livable wage to do it. There's also a, uh, a misunderstanding about what treatment should be, I think. A, a lot of people have come to expect uh, that if there's not a sauna, beachfront property, and spas, and all these things, and they got me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those things, uh, but none of that's covered by insurance. And if you think that your insurance is going to afford you uh, to live in a five-star resort, with a private chef, then you're probably, A, not looking for the right things in your recovery, and, and B, kind of missing the point. But that did happen. There was a lot of high-end luxury uh, places for, for quite some period of time because for a period of time, the reimbursements were very hefty. Uh, when that stopped, you see a lot of those places go away or you got to come up with 60 grand cash to get into the door. So um, it's unfortunate that people have come to think that that's what treatment looks like Again, nothing wrong with it. I mean, we at the Shores had beachfront property. We had swimming pools. I mean, we had some of those things. We had a very well-rounded holistic services that included massage and chiropractic and all those things that have clinical validity uh, and evidence-based reasons for using them. But the, the beachfront property was just a, a fluke that we happened upon some very affordable property there. You know, it wasn't really necessary for what we did. Hmm. Very interesting. 
from the insurance end of things, you know, some of the treatment owners I talk to and some of our clients actually form pretty good relationships with the insurance providers. You know, did you see that when you had like much lower reimbursement levels, were you able to negotiate with providers at all? Well, um, we were small enough that doing in-house billing was not reasonable. Uh, the amount of people it would take to do it well uh, wasn't uh, doable for us. We were a very mom-and-pop type uh, atmosphere. So with a uh, very clinically based in, um, environment and all of our employees mostly focused on that, we did our billing through a third-party biller. Um, now, how well they did is you know, uh, debatable depending on who you talk to. Did we negotiate? Sure, absolutely. Did we try to negotiate? Yes. Were there at times where there was no negotiating? And that's where you get into the in-network and out-of-network, and that's been an issue as well. Um, another reason why it's been harder to keep the doors open for a lot of places is the way the insurance is structured for deductibles both in and out of network. I'll give you a classic example. is a policy that I own currently. Uh, it's a Blue Cross Blue Shield policy, uh, Florida Blue. And if I go in network, I have a $10,000 deductible. Okay, you know, the old days of $2,000 deductibles are largely gone. A lot of families don't have $10,000. But if I wanted to go out of network and select where I wanted to go, it went to $45,000. Well, quite frankly, um, if I had $45,000, I wouldn't need the insurance to go to treatment. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so um, that, that's another factor. As we saw the ACA plans come on and, and they were having to um, insure for pre-existing conditions, and I'm glad they did. I think that's important that we have that available to the public. Uh, but what that did was it, the, the, insurance, the insurance companies are very, very good at what they do, and that's making money. What their, their, their goal is to, they've got a bottom line they've got to meet. They've got shareholders for the most part, not all of them, but most of them. And their goal is to make money. That's what they're there for. And they do it very well. Unfortunately, that comes at the cost of the consumer and the services that can't be provided at a reasonable rate to them. So if a client calls me and says, listen, I, I, you know, I got a PPO policy. I want to come to your center. And it says, you know, I can go anywhere because it's PPO. It's great, you know, but your deductible is $45,000. And legally, I have to collect that. So you got forty five grand Because if so, quite frankly, I can treat you for less than that. Right. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> and, you know it, it's, it's, it's become a very difficult environment for our industry. Um, you know, and unfortunately, uh, that's the, the, the way we're headed. And so then they want to force you into the in-network where they have more reasonable deductibles. The problem with that is that it's not as always that easy, and then they negotiate rates that are oftentimes unsustainable. So there's a lot of places that won't go in network simply because they're trying to provide quality care, really high-quality care that truly helps people. And you cannot provide residential care for somebody or even PHP and survive on $200 a day. You've got psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed mental health counselors, you know, grief specialists. You, you know, I mean, it's just you, I can go on and on of the high-level, highly educated, licensed individuals who don't work for free. They've got student loans they're paying off. You know, you, your, your medical doctors are paying student loans to this day, most of them. Uh, I'm still paying student loans for the ongoing education that I've received. And so, you know, and I, I would hear that from families. They'd get upset because we did a lot of scholarship work in the shorts. And um, I would hear, you know, well, gee, you know, is it all about the money? I said, you know, well, we're not really making money, but let me ask you this. Do you know a psychiatrist that will see you for free? No. What about a licensed psychologist? No. What about a chiropractor? No. What about a massage therapist? 
what about a licensed mental health counselor? What about, a, you know, and I can go on down the line. And then we throw in housing and food because that's what residential care involves. And now all of a sudden you expect it to be free. It just, does, it just doesn't work that way. All those people have to get paid and they have families they have to support. So um, the, the expectations from some people, and I get it because, you know, I was in that boat at one point myself. Um, but it's, it's just they don't see the whole picture. Yeah. What about the timelines on your reimbursement? So I know for some smaller centers, a lot of insurance providers kind of delay the reimbursement timeline, right? Which is really hard to manage from a cash flow standpoint for a smaller center. Did you ever run into issues there? Well, sure. And that's changed over time as well. And different carriers have different response times. And so, you know, there, there are some that, you know, you can, and, and it's changed over time as well as the way you bill. So it used to be that everybody billed on certain intervals and you would see a certain you know, time frame and then that moved, that target moved. So people would then start billing daily, uh, figuring they might get you know less uh, kickback or at least they see their money faster and then that changed. And so again, the, the insurance companies are very, very good at what they do. I, I, um, I really admire their, the depth to which they go to do what they do so well, um, but it's a moving target. So, yeah, there are some that pay faster than others. Some you'll see within the first 30 days. Some drag it out to the legal maximum. Some will do things like you know, claim there's a chart audit or whatever else they can do to delay paying. And so if they ask for information, that all gets put on hold. You're in an audit stage or they're looking for information, which they often already have. <laughs> you know, they ask for the same information again. You say, okay, I already sent it, but here it is again. So, yeah, there's, they have a lot of tricks. They, they, again, they know what they're doing, and they do it very well. Something I wanted to bring up is you mentioned, obviously, the bad publicity, especially in the South Florida area, you know, and something I think we've all seen, you know, throughout the field. Um, One of my big pieces, I guess, has been the fact that I feel like the recovery community or the treatment community doesn't band together enough to provide a positive counterpoint to some of the bad publicity. Do you think there are opportunities out there to provide, you know, or to get together and kind of have positive publicity around the space? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, a few years ago I did that. I wrote a LinkedIn article. I think it's called Why All the Arrest in Florida or something like that. And tried to explain to people that there were all these additional laws in Florida. Matter of fact, most of the things that you're hearing people be arrested for in Florida aren't even illegal in other places. And that's why you hear about it in Florida and not other places. So is there some good news to be told? Absolutely. Um, should it be told? Absolutely. Does the industry locally uh, band together? Well, no. Um, now there are organizations that are supposed to represent their members. Uh, in Florida, you have FATA, you nationally have NATAP, NADAC. Um, are they effective in uh, the, the PR end of this world? Not really. Uh, I haven't seen anything that even attempts to do that, quite frankly. I think it's necessary to get the true information out. I think it's important for the parents to know, um, you know, I mean, I'll never forget. And there was the, the famous piece, I think it was Megan Kelly's piece. And one of the families that was interviewed that had lost a child here was very upset because they had one child who had died in a Kenny Chapman house, which is the now most infamous case. And the one everybody continues to use and act as though it's still going on, even though he's you know years old. Um, but she also had another child that had been, very successfully served and was continuing to be very successful in the recovery here in South Florida. And she wanted to make sure that got out. Unfortunately, again, uh, the folks at the Megan Kelly show decided that that didn't sell well and that was left out and edited away. 
Um, do, do, did we need a good response to that? Yes. Did we get a good response to that? Absolutely not. Are we organized as a, um, industry to stand together and make this happen? Nah, not really. Uh, would it serve us well and would, would it be an affordable thing to get uh, some good PR going? It would be a very wise move that if the industry could get coalesced well enough to do that, it would be great. It would serve us all well. And it would serve families well too, so that they would have good information and be able to send their loved ones to quality places that have a great re, uh, recovery community support. Yeah, I think a lot of centers need more of a PR approach to, especially in South Florida, where you have such a never, sorry, negative reputations. Um, if you get that positive image out there, talk about your outcomes, talk about successful treatments. It's not just for your center. I think it is for the field as a whole. Uh, you know, I often look at, I often look at a lot of stuff that centers share. Obviously, you know, we do marketing and sometimes we'll take over accounts and everyone's sharing all this negative stuff about, you know, what alcohol does or what drugs do. And it's always negative and it's always people at the bottom, you know, of kind of their addiction, unfortunately. And that's important to, you know, let people know, I guess, the dangers, but we fail to share all the positive recovery stories of all these people leaving our centers <laughs> that are much better than they were, you know, before they came in. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's really good stuff going on. And I think we're uh, on the verge of some really phenomenal breakthroughs in the way we treat people and the successes that we see. I think we're start, I think we've seen the peak I hope, I'm praying, of the opioid epidemic. I think we're starting to see us on the other side of that bell curve. That's my hope and prayer. Unfortunately, there's a, uh, other substances that have been largely ignored during the opioid epidemic. So meth and cocaine and other stimulants are on the rise. Um, but, um, but, but, yeah, I think our works toward prevention and uh, relapse prevention as well as treatment have all come a long way in the last decade or two. And there's some recent advancements that I think will take it even further. Um, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of most of what we hear is driven by dollars through the government. So even the government studies, and, and I want to be very clear when I say this that I am a proponent of using medications. However, the data that's being driven on MAT is often skewed by the pharmaceutical industry to make it appear to be something it's not. Um, and it's not an end all to to everything simply because again we've received a rise in stimulants, and that's a, people who are using meth are not helped by those medications that people who are using opioids are. So so with an understanding of that and some other concerns, uh, it's being pushed and sold, and it's receiving all the federal and state funding, and yet we've got more people dying from alcohol related issues than we do from opioids. But opioids are grabbing the attention and all the money right now. So. Again, there's there's a lot of good stuff going on that people just aren't hearing about, uh, and it, and it's really really um, to me as someone who's really concerned about outcomes and the research and the outcomes have been my focus for uh, over a decade. I'm very encouraged. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positive stuff out there. We just have to get better at sharing it for sure. You were talking about so you kind of covered some of the industry trends that affected you know your ability to stay profitable, stay in the black. Um, but if you look back, you know, is there anything you think that you could have done differently that might have helped you survive? Well, certainly, um, let me back up and tell you one of the other problems we had, and then I'll tell you what we could have done differently. One of the other problems we had was trying to find a location. So as those, that shift in what they would certify for and they moved toward the residential levels again, 
trying to get into a residential facility, trying to open a residential facility in many areas is very difficult. The municipalities don't want you there, and they will fight you at zoning and every other level possible. The whole not-in-my-backyard uh, approach makes it very hard to open a residential facility in many locations. There's, there's almost no appropriately zoned areas. You have to go for zoning exceptions, and you can't. And that is where we got stuck. The properties we had that we had got moved into early on were not zoned for residential. When we tried to get zoned for residential, we got we were fought every way possible by neighbors, um, you know, municipalities, neighboring uh, facilities, anybody who could wanted to stop us. So, um, not being able to provide that full continuum at that point because we were for a while and then got denied after a while because of neighbor issues and municipal issues. Um, hurt us tremendously. Not only was it the levels of care that provided the highest margins, but it's always been my contention that providing the full continuum is, is the best way to go. Keeping somebody connected as much as possible to a therapeutic team that can work with them through their different levels of care is the best care and the best outcomes. And certainly as a patient, you don't want to go from A to B to C to D through your, your treatment process. I mean, what are the odds of you staying with it with all that? You know, where every you know, week or three weeks, you 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 got a new therapist and a new group of people and you don't know, you know, they don't know you anymore and you're starting us like, I already went through all this. Why am I doing this again? So that um, was, was a big issue for us as well. So getting, again, people to understand that uh, who's in recovery. Um, you know, I, I, I'm speaking this week at a uh, lawyer's assistance program conference. So I'll be speaking to a bunch of attorneys who need help. I, I have friends in recovery who are literally brain surgeons, judges, um, you know, corporate executives. It's all kinds of people. Everybody sees, you know, the 20-year-old kid who looks like what they think a drug user looks like, and they think that's what everybody looks like, and that's what's moving in next door. There may be some of that. Um, the truth of the matter is it's somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, brother, sister, father. And the whole idea that they shouldn't be getting well in your neighborhood is um, uh, cruel <laughs> and, and, and criminal in my eyes. I mean, it's just non-human. Uh, I, I don't get it. So that's, that's a barrier as well. And, and getting a stigma. And we're working to, you know, obviously there's a lot of nonprofits out there working to fight the stigma. There's movements about the way we, the language we use and how they're portrayed. There's actors that are coming out. I don't know that it's moved the needle much, to be honest with you. And, uh, my experience trying to get residential properties has still been the same thing. That, that's great that you're helping people. Just don't do it anywhere near me. It's, it's like it's going to rub off on them and their kids are suddenly going to become addicts because there's a treatment center within a mile of their house. Um, it, 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 you were just, you know, head in the sand mentality that they're not <laughs> paying attention to what, what really might trap their children, but it's a reality we have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely right. Are there other things that you would try to change or maybe do differently that you think might have helped? Well, sure. I, you know, if I were to start all over from scratch, I would have a, a different setup, a campus style where I could, you know, get the land in advance, get everything done together, have the full continuum in one location. Um, you know, I would do that. Uh, obviously, uh, I would look at a, a split model where I would have two locations nearby. Uh, the ability to serve in-network and out-of-network at once under one general umbrella is a very healthy approach. That way, you know, the, the ability to get, help everybody who calls, basically. You know, and the, the, you, know you, you hate to turn people away because their coverage doesn't work for you. 
and finding the best solution for them. If I were to design the ideal little recovery village of sorts, then it would certainly include the ability to help as many people from as many means and as many payment methods as possible so that I wasn't turning people away. And there are sustainable ways to do that. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it does look different for each level depending on the reimbursements, what you actually can do for them. But that would, that's something I would do differently. Obviously, I would start with the ability to serve all levels from the beginning as well so that I didn't have to fight the whole uh, NIMBY issue. Uh, that can be done. It's just harder to do once you've already started somewhere else. You can't then change that into uh, a residential model. Obviously, the, the way we reach people, too, as the industry has changed, the PR we talked about earlier, I would work more on that. What about from the marketing perspective? I mean, I was a marketing guy, so I'm always curious. You know, is there anything you think you could have done differently there? Well, that's that world has changed a lot, too. So um, we've gone from, you know, Google AdWords and, okay, now you need LegitScript. Okay, how do you get LegitScript? How long does it take to get it? There are places that are literally closing while they wait for their application to get approved. Yeah, it cracks me up. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you do something There's else. There's got to be a change there. <laughs> right. They, you can't, you you can't, can't sit around and you wait. You can't advertise. And we're, and we're going to take six months to decide whether you get to advertise or not. That's, that's not a, a, a survivable system. There's high-quality, really great places closing because they're not allowed to reach the public through the typical means. Now, we weren't really heavily dependent on that anyway, uh, but, it, you know, it, it would have been nice. We applied, never got anywhere with it, months went by, still don't know whatever really happened. Um, and we were one of the first to apply. So, so what is it? How is it, how is that decided? Who gets the who gets approved when? You know, I mean, is there is there is there a full uh, disclosure there? Do we know what's going? I mean, who decided that this one organization was going to decide what happened to an entirely different industry? Who made that decision and how? And is that legitimate? Is it legal? You know, there's it's like, there's a lot of questions that pop up there, and so there are some good places that have died because they lived on um, the internet marketing, and when they could no longer do it successfully, and other places could, and um, coincidentally or not, it was usually the large hedge fund owned places that were getting the early approvals. So the people that already have a ton of money are now flooding the market, and everybody's going to their center because that's all they find when they go to look it up. Yeah, you know, I, I guess my whole thing with that is you should never ever depend on a single sole source for your marketing and your outreach. You know, I think too many centers didn't diversify. They sat on their hands rather than actually figuring out how to make it work. I mean, there's tons of ways to market your center that are effective. <laughs> AdWords is just yeah, one absolutely. of those. And, then, and, a lot of them, and a lot of them shifted to Facebook and now they need that for Facebook as well. So, you know, they went to social media, and social media is following suit, and so now they're, they're restricted. You're right, and, and those people were putting their eggs in one basket because it was working for them. Yep. But just, just as I was saying, by having the full continuum of care, as the insurance industry moves the target, you can move with it. The same thing is true in marketing. If, you've got all, if you're only looking in one direction and suddenly the winds change, you're, you're uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> now what? Right. You know? Yeah, it's a huge issue. I mean, you should always double down on what's working, but you've always got to keep a piece of that diversified because you never know. <laughs> it's just like we found out pretty, I think, in a pretty painful lesson for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned a lot of these things that you kind of might do differently. And from what you're seeing now, you know, let's say that there are, is someone else, it's in a similar situation to where you were, you know, just a couple months ago where they're looking at closing, they don't really have 
they're not being successful right now. Census is down. You know, is there anything you think that they should change right now to hopefully try to stay open and, and stay operational? Well, you know, it depends on what's got them where they are. Obviously, you know, you may need to scale down. There, there, there is a inexplicable but undeniable seasonality to what we do. And I've heard a lot of theories as to why that is. Um, and, and I've got some of my own, but they're just that theories. Uh, so we have we are in a slow time of year. We have a, a definite slow time. Uh, combine that with the restrictions where now some of the insurance carriers are saying we're not going to cover anything out of state. So Florida had traditionally been a destination treatment, and a lot of people who came here were from other places. Um, and so someone who's already struggling financially can't make a lot of those moves that we're talking about. They can't open up another you know in network location in another state. They, they're they're already, they're struggling to keep the current doors open. Um, obviously, you know, downsizing, you know, figuring out how, how, what you're doing that's working and not focusing on, um, you know, providing the staff you need to get through this period of time. Uh, again, diversifying your efforts to reach people, um, possibly partnering with other facilities, combining forces, uh, whether it be to merge under a single umbrella, because, you know, join companies. There's a lot of people that um, saw the writing on the wall and were selling. And there's still a lot of people that are looking to buy even. And so some people are doing that. They're selling all or a portion of their entity so that there's now the funding to prop it up during this period of transition, during the slow time of year. Uh, so there's, you know, there's all those options are out there. As far as actually surviving it, um, you know, it, it really depends on where you are. There's so many different answers depending on the dynamics of that particular facility. Interesting times for sure. Well, so now you're on a completely new project, right? You're a part of what's called Addiction DNA. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, addiction DNA, and just so you know, I'm I'm doing that in uh, cooperation with Transformations Treatment Center in Delray. Uh, and the reason I ended up there is because after talking to many, many places after closing the shores, they are the ones that most closely matched my heart for the quality of care and the types of care that were effective. And so I'm doing this with them. Addiction DNA is an effort that's done through my work with Dr. Kenneth Blum to do genetic testing, and everybody says, oh, I've done genetic testing. Well, you, you haven't done this because it's called the Genetic Addiction Risk Score. It's the GARS. It's the first patented genetic test in the U.S. And what it does is it looks for particular markers on 10 different um, locations in your DNA that show you your predisposition toward the various things that fall under the umbrella of reward deficiency syndrome. Included in that, are uh, all the different substance addictions, opiates and opioids, alcohol, stimulants, uh, food, sugar, gambling, um, sex addictions. There's the uh, spectrum disorders fall under reward deficiency syndrome, uh, Tourette's. You have a variety of personality disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. Cravings as a whole fall under that. Um, predispositions toward anxiety and depression fall under that. So what we're able to do through this, this, this particular genetic test is determine which neurotransmitters you have gene variants, so what they call alleles, or risk factors in. So for instance, if I see that at the 5-HT2 receptor area, you have a genetic deficiency or difficulty or risk factor that says that you're not getting proper serotonin production or reception, or you're metabolizing it, or your uptake is too fast, I can give you the, the solution for that. So, or, And it all really typically boils down to dopamine, and that's due to something called the brain reward cascade. 
So each of your different neurotransmitters interplays with the others, and they all, in the long term, when it comes to obsessive, compulsive, and craving behaviors, comes down to dopamine. Now, there's others involved, but it always affects dopamine. So by understanding exactly what in your DNA caused your neurotransmitter disruptions or deficiencies, we can resolve it in many cases, in most cases. And by doing so, we give you a balanced brain. Your cravings are dissipated or gone completely. You have the same effect on um, PTSD. And uh, now, don't get me wrong, the exposure to trauma is still there. Uh, I'm not saying this is a magic bullet. You have to understand that your DNA is somewhere between 40 and 70%. Let's just call it an average of about 50% of the picture. You still have life stressors, exposure, what we call epigenetics, a variety of other things involved. So simply knowing what your DNA is doesn't mean you will or, or will not um, end up with an addiction. It just shows you the predisposition or the likelihood and, and which ones it would be. And then it gives you a solution. So it's a precision, precision addiction management is what I would call it. It's not medicine because your neurotransmitters don't usually require medicine to be stabilized to, to achieve homeostasis. What they need are the right nutrients to feed your body and brain so that it can do its thing properly. Once we do that, you now have a more focused brain. ADD, ADHD is uh, eliminated or alleviated greatly. A more focused brain is going to do better with cognitive behavioral therapies. Less uh, anxiety is going to do better with the, with the typical treatment therapies. Uh, less depression is going to do better. You know, all the, we're removing all these barriers and at the same time removing cravings, which is a huge factor in relapse, to give somebody a much, much, much better chance at the other therapies doing their job. You know, we wonder why the relapse rate is so high. Well, you're dealing with a brain that is imbalanced. That's why they gravitated toward the addiction in the first place. If we can get it into balance and achieve that homeostasis that we're looking for at this neurotransmitter level, you're now working with a much healthier brain that can begin to work forward with the therapies that are being provided. Okay, very interesting work. Well, I appreciate the overview on that. Is there any final thoughts that you want to leave listeners with as far as anything that you didn't or weren't able to mention or especially recommendations for, you know, kind of how to handle things at the, you know, during the current storm? Well, you know, it, it is surviving the storm. It, it, here's what I will tell you. It will change, you know, and I've worked in this industry for quite a while and I've seen this before. There was a period in time where some of the places uh, that, that have been here forever went to an entirely cash pay basis back in, you know, even in the 80s um, and because insurance cut them out. And, and those are the ones that survived. And so sometimes you, you have to look for alternative means of payment and, and figuring that out. Um, that, that would be a big thing to do. And knowing that the, the winds will change again. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever it is today, you can pretty well be guaranteed that in the next five years, that's going to change again. As the insurance world is in flux, is ACA going to remain? Is it going to be changed? Is it going to be eliminated? Is it going to be morphed into something else? Uh, you know, I go to a variety of conferences around the country all the time, and I hear uh, all the experts giving five different opinions. Right. One is really going to happen. Uh, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can tell you that it will change, and being flexible and having the ability to change with it is going to be key to survival. For sure. Well, great, Lyle. I really appreciate all the time and all the insights. Uh, if people want to reach out and contact you, you know, what's the best way to do that? Well, if they want to contact me directly, my cell phone is always available, and that is 
7-7-2-3-3-2-8-7-1-1. Again, that's 7-7-2-3-3-2-8-7-1-1. If they want to contact the facility directly, they can call 888-919-2619. Again, 888-919-2619. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, if they want to know more about the DNA testing and the corresponding neuronutrients, I do provide free educations and training on that, uh, just trying to bring the world up to speed because it so greatly improves outcomes. For opioid addicts, the early studies show that relapse rates drop from the, the normal 86% relapse to 6%. That kind of improvement is something that the world needs to be doing. It should be mandatory in treatment. Very interesting. Yeah, for cocaine, it's 90 to, to 20, and for alcohol, 56 to 20.5. Those are the improvement rates from relapse rate of 90 for cocaine down to 20%. So, again, with opioids, which is what everybody's talking about today, going from 86% relapse to a 6% relapse rate is just too great a number to ignore. Right. Well, okay. Well, thank you so much for that information, Lyle. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And to our listeners, as always, I appreciate you listening. This is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and you can find this wherever podcasts can be found. And as always, a thank you to our sponsors, Circle Social Inc. You can find out more about them at www.circlesocialinc.com. Thank you.